This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Science Friction and to our series Real Wild Child, staggering stories of childhood from our archive. And today, a really intriguing puzzle that connects history with biology and it's personal. It's a story about the family secrets inside your cells, inside my cells. Hi, Natasha Mitchell with you. And with me is... Hello. Hello. Um, my mum. It's not often we stand mother and daughter in front of a mirror like this. Never. No. 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 Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say at this point, my dog's watching on thinking we have totally lost our minds, but let me explain. Well, I'm interested in this exercise of working out what is similar about us physically and what isn't, because I see your family your late parents, your, my grandparents, in your face. Mm -hmm. But I don't see us in each other's face. I think it's in the eyes. Do you? Myself. Maybe we have a similar nose. Mm. Don't think so. You've always had a button nose. <laughs> <laughs> a little button in mine, some protuberance. <laughs> but it's a fine protuberance. So... You know, there's what my mum and I look like on the outside, thanks to the genes she passed down to me. But do you ever wonder how the life experiences of your relatives and ancestors, not just their physical features, might have been transmitted to you in some way biologically? It's a really curious idea and it's a potent one. And I'm interested in it partly because in my family, and perhaps you relate, World War II came along and fractured hearts and minds and lives. I'm sure that was war trauma in retrospect because he almost turned into a hippie later. He died young. He died in his early 60s. My mum's talking about her dad, my grandfather. He spent most of the war incarcerated in a German prisoner of war camp. After he was released, he married my gran, who had served as a naval nurse in PNG, and together they had four kids. Then he left the family. And we reckon we can see the tracks of the trauma lines of war in the three generations since. I suppose it's impacted on all of us. Impacted on you. And that's another story. <laughs> and it's mm. that sort of deeper history that we're looking at today. And the biological stories it might reveal inside us. I think everybody's intrigued by this idea. They're part of a history that isn't just about the genes that they have, their DNA, that it's also about the experiences that occurred before them to their ancestors. I think this is such a powerful idea. Rachel Yehuda's compelling work probes how traumatic experiences affect our biology. She studied war veterans, survivors of the Holocaust, of the September 11 attacks, and their offspring. She's Professor of Neuroscience and Psychiatry at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. This idea that we have a tool to be able to investigate whether or not people carry the effects of ancestral trauma in their genes, I mean, that's a very, very seductive thing. And that's why a lot of people are working on it. And the seductive tool she's referring to is an exploding field of science right now. It's called epigenetics. The suggestion being that the experiences you have, the choices you make, the foods you eat, the environment you grew up in, might play a role in switching important genes on and off in your body. But epigenetics is still a fledgling field, so... Beware, Beware of... 
of the hype. There's a hell of a lot we don't know. To probe further, though, I want you to connect with the unimaginable from World War II through the eyes of two generations in one incredible family. Grandmother and grandson. I think I had perhaps an understanding of what it was before I knew the word. And I think before I knew the word, it was... Okay, my name is Olga Hora. My grandmother's experiences of encampment and... And uh, I was born in Czechoslovakia. Losing all her family. And I live in Australia for the past 67 years, and this is my home. And deportation in cattle cars. The SS guards were waiting for us with dogs and they shoved us out from the carriages. It was corpses and it was unfathomable loss. I was 29 kilos, you know, like a walking skeleton. And so was my mum. You know, the body sort of dissolving and shedding itself. Holocaust, that is the word Anthony Levin is speaking of. I'm in the beautiful home of his grandmother, Olga Horak. Now 97, artist, advocate, former businesswoman, mother, grandparent, volunteer. Anthony is a human rights lawyer and writer. And around us are Olga's striking abstract sculptures. We can wait. It cannot escape from me ever. Olga says through her sculpture, her hands have somehow been subconsciously giving form to all she lost as a child. Whatever I did in sculpting came out uh, relating a family group, relating like mother and child, the last hug. There was always something, I couldn't help it. Sometimes, you know, I started to paint and all of a sudden there were flowers and all of a sudden I painted and the flowers became skulls. Then I put it away. Memories morph into other forms, but memories matter to Olga. Remembering is absolutely vital. Remember not to forget. Olga's entire immediate family was murdered in the Holocaust. Because it's easy, you know, when people say, don't live in the past, live for the future. I don't live in the past. You know, the past lives in me. But how does that past live on in Olga's children and grandchildren like Anthony, those second and third generation Holocaust survivors? They didn't see or feel or smell the horror of the concentration camps directly themselves, but they have grown up with that legacy. This has been a burning question for Rachel Yehuda. We got phone calls from Holocaust offspring who pretty much I mean, almost insisted that they are true casualties of the Holocaust, just like their parents. Many had been to therapy for years and years and didn't feel they had really hit the nail on the head in terms of why they felt the way they felt. And we were getting so many calls like this that we decided that we would try to figure out what is going on with Holocaust offspring. 
and the offspring of those offspring. Anthony's an emotionally robust, focused, intellectual man. He has to be for his work. But growing up in households infused with Holocaust stories has left, well, a potent imprint. You know, as a child, I used to lie in bed in the hot summer with the blanket tucked right up to my neck and all my limbs inside the quilt and the blanket because I thought that in the night someone was going to burst in and chainsaw my arms off. That's not your normal childhood bogeyman under the bed, I don't think. I thought I was going to be murdered in my sleep. You were at your most vulnerable. It's in the dark. It's when you're alone. It's all the things that in a way resonate with the Nazis coming in the night to take you away. And they're absolutely not the same thing, but to deny some kind of psychological connection between them is probably folly. There's that psychological impact of growing up with a Holocaust history in the family, but could we be connected physiologically to the early traumatic experiences of our relatives and ancestors too, independent of the influence of growing up in an anxious household or any traumas of our own? This is contentious, as trauma researchers like Harvard's Kerry Ressler will attest. So if you would have asked me five or ten years ago, I probably would have said it's very unlikely. But then extraordinary real-life findings started capturing scientists' attention, including one study of another group of survivors from World War II. I love you. You belong to me. No. People don't belong to people. Of course they do. I'm not going to let anyone put me in a cage. The late, great Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. We wouldn't have had that glorious performance if Audrey wasn't one of the lucky ones. She survived the horrendous Dutch famine in World War II, although she suffered lifelong health consequences. Over 20,000 people died after the Germans blocked food supplies. Some survivors were pregnant while they starved. And they and their offspring became part of a famous study. It's called the Dutch Famine Study. The next generation and even the next generation had alterations in aspects of their metabolic biology that you might think of as being more prepared to survive in a starvation environment. But if they had a high energy environment, they might be more risk for obesity or diabetes or things like that. So the system might shift. But it indicated perhaps that environmental exposure to a environmental trauma, if you will, was able to somehow be marked in the DNA and we know not that it doesn't change the sequence of the DNA, but it changes how that DNA may be read. And that is an epigenetic change. Epigenetics means on top of genetics. It refers to different kinds of molecular marks and mechanisms that block your genes from being expressed, effectively switching them on or off. Kerry Ressler is Chief Scientific Officer at McLean Hospital and Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And like the experience of famine, he says traumatic stress might cause epigenetic changes that get passed on too. The next generation may be born with certain sensitivities to be more likely to survive in a dangerous, stressful situation. Be they more hypervigilant, be they more sensitive to certain things, which may be very critical if one were in that environment, but if one is in not in that environment, it may then look like 
anxiety, depression, etc. And I think we can now, through this kind of work, start to target specific biological signatures to better understand if that's the case. Yes, at the heart of epigenetics is this idea that if the environment throws me a set of circumstances that I need to deal with, my body will make an adaptation. So even if you lament the baggage your parents passed on to you, it could be worth giving thanks for the invisible epigenetic legacy they've passed on too. This is an extremely adaptive thing, and it's a beautiful thing, that we are able to make the kind of changes in the way we function that will help us. And, you know, I'm very interested in resilience. But it's a mixed bag because epigenetic legacies can leave us vulnerable in our modern environment. Now, if the event doesn't happen to your offspring, if your offspring isn't in Auschwitz, there may be a mismatch between the tools you've been given and your environment. Olga Horrock was 14 when her happy childhood turned to hell. First, the Nazis took her 16-year-old sister, Judith. Then they took her father. And that was my sister and me and my cousin in my grandmother's place. Unbelievably, Olga and her mother managed to stay together. They survived Auschwitz, a labour camp, a horror death march and the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. She remembers the Allied forces finally arriving. Able, young, strong soldiers fainted from the stench. They vomited and they cried like children. But you know, that was the day of liberation. We had to register survivors. So we had to line up in the open. And we came to a table where the officer sat behind and he asked our names and where did we want to be taken home to. And then you got a tiny little registration card. It was called the Displaced Persons Card, DP card. My mom got one. She gave her information. She came there and she said, my name is Piroshka Rosenberger and I wanted to go back home. She had her card. She collapsed. She made it all that way with you, through all that. Yes. And she was free. Olga's mother collapsed. She died in Olga's arms at the very moment of liberation. So, you know, they took her away on a stretcher and I wasn't allowed to go with her. She's in one of the mass graves. Olga's mother, sister, father, grandmothers, aunts, uncles, cousins didn't survive the war. Olga was left orphaned. She created her own family when she married, moved to Australia and had two daughters, one of them Anthony's mum. Mum, one day on the phone you told me. She never understood. She made me fear school camp. I had to be a clone. I sensed your soul whirring like a sycamore tree, wind blown, seeds turning with regrets. She never showed me tenderness. 
And then the third generation came. Grandson Anthony, a human rights lawyer, has used poetry to try and make sense of his family's history. Mother, don't you see? Mum, are you listening to me? She was caring for you all along, even before you were born. It's a difficult subject because my mother's life was, was difficult. Much of her adult life was full of pain, some of it self-inflicted, but there was something about growing up in the household with two survivor parents that leaves a person undeniably scarred. My childhood was very protected. I wasn't allowed to catch a bus as a teenager on my own. So again, you pass on this kind of sense of the world is an unsafe place. Scientists Rachel Yehuda and colleagues have found that children born after the war to Holocaust survivors with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, well, they're more likely to develop PTSD or depression themselves compared to other Jewish adults. She's also found that they share certain epigenetic markers with their parents on a gene associated with how reactive to stress we are and our sensitivity to the stress hormone cortisol. They're more reactive and sensitive to both. The markers weren't seen in a control group and nor were they due to any trauma experienced by the children themselves. It's a marker likely associated with the Holocaust experience in families. I can put it in the words of one of the Holocaust offspring that uh, was in one of our psychotherapy groups. She said, you mean I have super sensitive shock absorbers? That explains everything, <laughs> right? Yeah. That explains why even little things cause me so much, so much angst. I thought that was a great description. But how or even whether epigenetic changes are transmitted from parent to child remains unknown. It would need to happen via eggs and sperm, and that's just not clear yet. But here's some more compelling evidence for trauma being passed down biologically from one generation to the next. Kerry Ressler and colleagues have shown that particular fears might be inherited epigenetically, in mice families at least. Brian Diaz, a fellow in my lab at the time, was very interested in the concept of transgenerational inheritance. And so we basically made a bet. He wanted to study this process. I did not think it would work. So he trained a, a set. Hang on. How yes. much did you bet? <laughs> it was probably a beer. <laughs> and, I, and I lost. So <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> so, so we trained a set of, of father mice to be afraid of cherry blossoms. I know, right? Who's scared of cherry blossoms? Well, you can train a mouse to be scared of the sweet scent if they receive a little shock each time they smell it. Ouch. But the results were dramatic in the first generation. And what we found there was if you train a mouse several times to be afraid of an of a smell, like a cherry blossom smell, mimicking, if you would, the trauma exposure of, you know, a bad thing happening several times, the brain rewires in a way that it is much more sensitive to that cherry blossom smell. You have more receptor proteins in the nose for the cherry blossom smell. You have larger neural regions in the brain that encode the cherry blossom smell. 
such that the animal appears to be more sensitive at a neural brain level to that smell. That really says our brains respond plastically as we learn to fear new things. Mind-blowing is what happened in the next generation of mice who inherited the father mice's genetic material. And believe it or not, the next generation showed an enhanced behavioural startle response to the, to the cherry blossom odour, even though they'd never experienced it themselves. And even more excitingly, their brain had the same marks as if they had undergone on the smell trauma, but they had never experienced it before. They'd never experienced it and they hadn't learnt to be fearful of cherry blossom through watching their parent. Right. So the first experiment, we couldn't explicitly say that. They didn't watch their parent, but who knows, maybe mice have a language that we don't understand for cherry blossom. That's right. Watch <laughs> so, out. Beware of the cherry exactly. blossom. <laughs> exactly. So, and the most exciting experiment was we were then able to do in vitro fertilization, a train the fathers to be afraid of the smell, took sperm from the fathers, made new mice in the transgenic facility. When they were raised, they still, even though they had never smelled this before, showed behavioral responses as if they were more sensitive to the smell and their brain showed the increased representation of sensitivity to the smell. So there's an example of something being passed down in sperm. Do you know what that is? We have hints. We know the specific protein or gene that encodes the receptor for the cherry blossom smell. We could target the DNA and say specifically, is there anything different about the DNA in the sperm of the father that was trained to be afraid of that smell? And sure enough, there was. At the epigenetic level, there were marks, there were methylation chemical signatures on the cherry blossom smell receptor gene that were different in the fathers that were trained versus those who were not. So the genome hadn't changed that it was passing down, but the things that control the levers, the epigenetic levers that control what genes are switched on and off had changed and they were passed on to the next generation. That's what we think, yes. So fear changed brains and those changes were passed on to children. Many Holocaust families take great comfort in science like this. There's a sense of validation that comes from knowing that they're connected to history through biology. But that comfort concerns eminent sociologist Frank Ferrady. He thinks it fixes Jewish identity in time to the trauma of the Holocaust. He's Jewish-Hungarian himself. His father hid from the Nazis during World War II. His mother survived a concentration camp but lost a sister. Most of both of their families were killed. I'm open to the idea that science does provide us with incredible insights about the way that the human brain and our, our psychology and our physicality is evolving. But what I have issues with is the one-dimensional way in which suddenly we almost have the mirror image of the past where we continually attribute behavioral problems, particularly with children, to certain medical processes that we've never understood before, apparently, which leads to almost like a, a form of what I call neurodeterminism, where our, our human behavior, which in the past was explained by economic determinism, or material determinism or sociobiology is now somehow influenced by the epigenetic changes that have taken place as a result of the destructive experiences that some of our family members had gone through. 
The fact that you may have biologic changes as a result of parental experiences isn't an excuse for anything. It's just a fact. And people use the fact of these findings in all sorts of really astounding ways. But the truth is that in my experience, the idea that there are epigenetic changes in offspring has been reassuring and validating to people. My ultimate big concern is that we adopt a very fatalistic attitude towards life where our behavior and and the way we relate particularly to our children and to our parents is pre-given by uh, biological attributes. And therefore, it becomes a way in which we lose sight of the fact that you and I have got the inner resilience and capacity to influence the way we bring our kids up and to alter the way that we interact with the older generations. These are all open questions that are not subject to science or any form of of knowledge about who we are. Rachel Yehuda argues that the results emerging from epigenetic findings, though, so far, are actually really hopeful and far from fatalistic for families. One of the important studies that we have done is examine the epigenetic changes in two stress-related genes before and after psychotherapy. And we were very intrigued to find that epigenetic changes in at least one of these genes were associated with a positive outcome to psychotherapy. And that's a very powerful lesson. What that means is if you can exert an environmental influence, in this case, good psychotherapy, you may be able to reverse some of these epigenetic effects. And good news too for those mice that were trained to be terrified of cherry blossom scent. Here's Harvard's Professor Kerry Ressler. And again, we don't do talk therapy in a mouse. (laughs) I'd like to see you try. (laughs) (laughs) Squeak, squeak. But, um, you know, most of our trauma-based therapies are based on the process of exposure. So in mice, at least, if we have the mouse that's afraid of a smell, and you then expose them over and over again to the smell without any shock so that it eventually is no longer afraid of that smell, the marks in the brain and the marks in the DNA reverse such that it looks like they were never afraid of that in the first place. Well, that's extraordinary. The hope of that then is that through talk, through therapy, through recovery, we can change our genome at an epigenetic level, and that can affect the next generation. Really the most important thing to say about epigenetic changes, I like to sometimes call them weapons of mass construction. This, This really is a way for people to not feel stuck with their genes. Thanks to Rachel Yehuda, Kerry Ressler, Frank Ferrady, and especially to Olga Horak and her grandson, Anthony Levin. I'm Natasha Mitchell, and one more in our Real Wild Child series, The Lost Boys. And you can catch me from then on on the Big Ideas podcast or nightly across Australia on ABCRN, Monday to Thursday at 8pm. Events, talks, festivals, all the biggest of big ideas. Check it out. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.